From KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Religion for Life, religionforlife.com. I'm John Shuck. Evolution has implications for humans that, that gas physics doesn't or that chemistry doesn't. You know, it, it has implications for morality that it evolved not, rather than it was given by God. It has implications for our status in the animal kingdom that were evolved like squirrels and daisies and ferns and dandelions, um, lots of things you know, that we're not special. All of those things are sort of philosophical byproducts of accepting naturalistic evolution. People don't like them. My guest is Jerry Coyne. He is a professor at the University of Chicago in the Department of Ecology and Evolution. He's the author of the text Speciation and the best-selling nonfiction book Why Evolution is True. In his latest book, he takes on the religion and science controversy. His book is called Faith Versus Fact, why Science and Religion Are Incompatible. Via Skype from Chicago, welcome, Dr. Coyne, to Religion for Life. Good to be here. Thanks. Well, your book, Fact, uh, Faith versus Fact, pulls no punches. Uh, in fact, you write that religion and science are not compatible, but are, quote, engaged in a kind of war. Uh, do you mean to use that strong a metaphor? Are religion and science at war? Um, yeah, I know that's sort of... Uh pugnacious language, although, you know, the book has been written with quite a temperate tone. I think the accusations mm -hmm. that have been shrill and strident and unfair and, you know, extremist are um, not really accurate. Um, the reviews of the book haven't pointed that out. But yeah, I think, you know, the warfare metaphor is basically correct because, you know, in certain cases, for example, creationism versus evolution in the United States, I mean, it really is quite a strong conflict, one that's battled out in the courts, one that's battled out in the schoolrooms. It's a fight for the minds of uh, children. In that case, it's a fight for between rationality and superstition, which I think is probably one of the most important conflicts of our day. I, and you write, uh, there's no surer route to immersion in the conflict between science and religion than becoming an evolutionary biologist. So you really are on the front line. Yeah, I mean, you know, I didn't intend to get involved in um, an analysis of the religion science debate um, until I wrote my first book, Why Evolution Was True, which is just a straight presentation for the public on the evidence for evolution. It actually did quite well, and there's only one sentence about religion in there, which is that enlightened religion has always managed to come to terms with evolution. Um, Otherwise, it's a completely religion-free book. And then when I went around on book tours and gave talks about the evidence for evolution, I faced serious pushback from a lot of believers. Remember that 40% of Americans are young Earth creationists when it comes to um, the origin of humans, and another 30% are theistic evolutionists. That is, they accept evolution, but they think that it is somehow directed or guided by God. So, you know, 70% of Americans don't accept evolution the way that we scientists do. And I realized that yeah. when I gave these talks and faced this kind of opposition, um, I suppose you could pinpoint the book's origin, temporal origin, at a talk I gave at Lake Forest College on why evolution is true with all my slides and pretty pictures of fossils and embryos and things. And at the end of the talk and in the question period, this woman stood up and she was weeping and she said, Dr. Coyne, you know, I'm totally convinced by what you said, but it's completely at odds with what my church told me. And I don't know how to reconcile 
you know, my religious beliefs with what I've just learned from you. And, you know, what am I supposed to do? And she was literally weeping. I mean, the tears running down her cheeks. And, of course, I faced a difficult dilemma because I didn't know what to tell her. I finally said something lame like, you know, I think you should talk to your spiritual counselor or your minister about these issues, which is the best I could do at the time. But that got me started investigating, you know, what causes this kind of disparity between faith and science and how do people reconcile it? Um, and that's ultimately led to Faith versus Fact, the book I guess we're discussing now. Yeah, and, and uh, you write in there kind of a frightening statistic, uh, and I would bear it out as well, just in terms of anecdotal evidence, that uh, people will give up science before they give up their religion. Yeah, that came from a uh, Time Magazine Roper poll. I can't remember the year, but it's given in the book. Well, they polled Americans. They said, well, you know, if you find a fact that's in opposition to one of the tenets of your faith, a scientific fact that is, uh, what would you do? Give up the tenet of your faith? Give up or reject that scientific fact or what? And it was 64% of Americans, nearly two out of three, said they would reject the scientific fact if it was in conflict with their faith. And that, in fact, is what we see with the, you know, 40% of Americans that are young earth creationists. Many of those are religious. In fact, almost all of people that reject evolution do so on religious grounds. So, and if you, I think in the book I mentioned the statistic in Britain, it's not 64%, but something like 35% people, um, British people, not just Christians, but all British people say that, you know, if you have a faith and science is in conflict with it, what do you do? And I think 30 odd percentage of those will reject the fact in favor of their faith. So that shows, you know, the nature of the conflict. Anybody that claims that there's no conflict between science and religion has to deal with those kind of statistics. Well, let's go there and talk about incompatibility. Um, so what's wrong, say, with uh, seeing religion as another way of knowing that uh, religion talks about uh, the why, purpose and meaning of life, uh, science talks about the how and the facts, or to use Stephen Jay Gould, uh, non-overlapping magisteria. They all have their realms. Yeah, well, there, I mean, you've, you've packed a lot into that sentence. I'll try to unpack it, as the postmodernists say. Uh, in terms of ways of knowing, if religion is a way of knowing, what do we know from it? You know, mm -hmm. let's let's put take separate that from the question of, okay. you know, what should I do in my life? Um, what is my purpose? What is my value? But what do we know? Because the central point of my book is that religion does rest pivotally on factual statements about the universe. There is a God. There's a certain number of gods. Jesus may or may not be God's son. This is the morality that God wants us to obey. Jesus was physically resurrected. Um, if you're a Muslim, you believe that, that an angel dictated the Quran to Muhammad. And honest theologians will admit that, yes, without this underpinning of beliefs in what is true, then our faith means nothing. Um, and I give a lot of mm -hmm. quotes in the book to document that because people will make the claim that religion really isn't about truth or faith, or sorry, truth or facts. Um, so if religion is about knowing, if, then w what do we know that we didn't know that, uh, um, say, you know, 2,000 years ago or 2,500 years ago in the time of the ancient Greeks? And the answer is nothing because we have thousands of religions in this world. And all of them make different claims about what's true. 
So what do we know? Do we know that Jesus is the son of God? No, because Muslims reject that. Do we know that Muhammad was the prophet of Allah? No, because Christians reject that. Do we know that gays should be stoned or apostates killed? You know, God, Muslims think that God has said that to us, whereas Christians in general will reject that. So, you know, if it's a way of knowing, my question is, what do we know from religion? And my answer is, we don't know nothing. <laughs> In terms of religion being about meaning, morals, and values, and this is the claim you said Stephen Jay Gould made in his book, Rocks of Ages. That is his solution to the conflict problem. That is, he claims that religion and science are separate magisteria. The magisterium of science is truth about the cosmos, that can be investigated, whereas the magisterium religion is meaning, morals, and values. Now, there's so that's the most common solution to the conflict between science and religion by what I call the accommodationists, people that like them to be harmonious, to claim that they're non overlapping spheres of inquiry. And that sounds good, but it's been rejected mostly by theologians for two reasons. Um, the reason theologians reject it is because. They know that their religions at bottom are founded on factual statements about the world, like the resurrection, or that Muhammad was dictated the Quran, or if you're a Scientologist, all those statements that L. Ron Hubbard made about Zenu, um, the Raelians, uh -huh. you know, most religions have this underpinning of fact, and that puts it within the ambit of science. I mean, clearly creationism is a scientific assertion about the, how the world began. Um, so theologians in general have been the ones to reject the non-overlapping magisterial hypothesis. On the other side, the claim that religion is the repository of meaning, morals, and values sounds good too, but it's wrong because there's this whole secular tradition of people like, um, well, the ancient Greeks for one thing, John Stuart Mill, Kant, Spinoza, um, up to the present day, John Rawls, Peter Singer, Anthony Grayling, all of whom discussed the question of meanings, morals, and values without any reference to anything divine. So the idea that, you know, you can only be moral or only discuss morality or values or the meaning of your life through the lens of religion is simply wrong. And you can uh, talk about, for example, uh, morality of humankind evolving. Um, so there's a way in which science uh, can take on those types of issues as well. Yeah, although, you know, I mean, it's my belief, although others have different beliefs, other secular philosophers, that ultimately morality is based on a preference, what you would like to see mm. in society and the rules that you make to dictate that. I don't think there's any such thing as an objective moral code, <laughs> because if there was, mm. you know, it wouldn't evolve. <laughs> but that also puts the lie to the fact that morality comes from religion, because if it did, if morality reflects God's will about how we are to behave, then why has what's been considered moral changed so drastically? Does that mean God's changed his mind over the years? I mean, yes, the Mormons would say so, because they used to prohibit black people from being lay priests, but then they had a revelation <laughs> that, you know, God all of a sudden told them that it was okay to let blacks be priests. But in general, you know, morality evolves independently of interpretation of scripture. People just decide to discard the parts of scripture or religion that they don't think comports with what they believe to be right. And what they believe to be right, as the Euthyphro argument that Plato made thousands of years ago, is independent of God. 
So, you know, I think religion is probably the worst repository for morals because it posits some kind of absolute truth or morality that cannot change as society changes. And when you do that, then you're prohibiting any kind of moral progress at all. My guest, if you're just joining us on Religion for Life, is uh, Jerry Coyne. He's the author of Faith Versus Fact, Why Science and Religion Are Incompatible. That's his latest book, Why Evolution is True, uh, came out a few years ago. Let's talk about the Clergy Letter Project, for example. We'll go back to um, evolution. Um, this is uh, an organization, Michael Zimmerman, the biologist, who says he wants to get churches kind of on the evolution team, and he feels that that's a good way to do it. So we have all these clergy signing this uh, letter saying that, hey, evolution's great for us. Uh, what do you make of that strategy? Well, I mean, anytime somebody accepts evolution— that's fine with me. So if churches, you know, any church that was previously opposed to evolution says that, you know, now they're down with it, that's fine. I have no opposition to that. Well, we're a, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> evolution happens to be true, and whoever signs on to it, regardless of their background, is okay. But so often, um, the churches that really claim to accept evolution in this way don't accept it in the same way that scientists do. For example, the Catholic Church is always used as an example, and the Pope has affirmed this, that, you know, they're down with evolution. Catholics like evolution, they've accepted it. In fact, they teach it in Catholic schools in many places, I understand. But they don't do it as a naturalistic, materialistic process, the way scientists like me accept it. And there's two examples of that. The first one is that they have a human exceptionalism in their form of Catholic evolution. That is, humans are uniquely separated from all other species because we have the ability to have a soul put into us. Now, there's no scientific evidence whatsoever for a soul and a lot of evidence against it. And at what point in the evolutionary phylogeny, when humans descended from our apish ancestors, did God suddenly decide to instill us with this thing that's undefined? So that's a proposition of the church as well, and it's not something we teach in evolution class because there's no evidence for it. And second of all, they still maintain that Adam and Eve are the literal ancestors of humanity. That is, all humans are the descendants of only two people, you know. Regardless of when they lived, probably the Catholic Church does not stipulate now that they lived 6,000 years ago. And, of course, we know scientifically that that's not true either, that the smallest that the population of, you know, Homo, our genus, um, was in the past couple million years was about 12,500 at a minimum. So they're still making statements about reality that are at odds with science, and, you know, they try to sweep this under the rug, but they if they're going to really be down with evolution, they have to buy it whole hog, as it is accepted by the scientific community. And that includes uh, no theistic evolution, that, uh, yeah, there's God, God made evolution, and then every now and then kind of pops in and straightens things out. Yeah, there's no evidence for that either. I mean, that involves several statements. I mean, several there's several kinds of theistic evolution, ranging from those that are almost creationists that say God completely controlled every step in the evolutionary hypothesis to those who, as you mentioned, think that God came in and tweaked the DNA now and then to make certain mutations. Usually those are the mutations that gave rise to homo sapiens. Um, But there's no evidence for any of that. First of all, evolution is not progressive as far as we know. 
it depends completely on the nature of natural selection that's impinging on the organism. So when it's good, for example, to become simpler, as it was in tapeworms that have lost their nervous system, their digestive system, most of their reproductive system, fleas have lost their wings, cave animals lose their eyes, it's not true that evolution is always proceeding in the direction of more complexity. And second of all, as far as we can tell, from lab experiments, mutations are not directed by God. They don't become more numerous when they're useful because we can do those experiments in, you know, bacteria and other organisms. So there, you know, mutations, as far as we know, are completely random in the sense that the chance that they'll occur does not depend on whether they're going to be good or bad for the organism. And that flies in the face of this idea that, you know, God is making mutations. Now, we can't of course, refute the proposition that God very rarely, every couple of million years, makes a mutation. But you could say that same thing about chemistry and physics and geology as well. You know, God could intervene at some period and let, put down a layer of stratum, you know, 600 million years ago. Or God could have created this benzene molecule, you know, 10 years ago. We can't refute that. All we can do is, you know, address the generalization um, whether mutations do truly appear to be naturalistic phenomena, and the data show that they are. And that, just putting God in there doing all that stuff doesn't actually help us know anything anyway. It's just a, a, a theological trick to protect God. Yeah, I mean, that's my viewpoint. It's what Anthony Grayling, the philosopher, calls an arbitrary superfluity, <laughs> which is big words for post hoc making up stuff. So if you're going to posit that God, you know, can intervene here and there to do things, but it's very rare, why not posit that for chemistry and physics and any other aspect of human behavior? You know, if somebody like kills his child, for example, you can say, well, God intervened there and, and you know, made that person kill his child. Otherwise, most humans obey the laws of, you know, heredity and the environmental influences that impinge on them. So, you know, these arbitrary superfluities are, as you characterize them very well, just ad hoc devices to keep the God hypothesis alive. Yeah, I mean, nobody's making the case against Boyle's law on religious grounds. I mean, that's really is uh, mostly the evolution. So, so why is evolution such a threat? The reason, of course, is because evolution has implications for humans that that gas physics doesn't or mm -hmm. that chemistry doesn't. You know, it it has implications for morality, that it evolved not, rather than it was given by God. It has implications for our status in the animal kingdom, that we're evolved like squirrels and daisies and ferns and dandelions. Um, lots of things, you know, that we're not special. All of those things are sort of philosophical byproducts of accepting naturalistic evolution. People don't like them. So evolution is the science is uniquely... Um, antithetical to religious belief. I mean, the only other branch of science I can think of that is in any way similar is cosmology. But it's not nearly, I mean, even theists can come to terms with the Big Bang. They just say that's God's way of making the universe. But cosmology doesn't have the implications for human morality, human self-awareness, human identity that evolution does. And they're not implications that really favor any kind of religious dogma. Now, one wag said uh, that uh, Galileo put God out of a home and Darwin put God out of a job. And coming to terms with that is pretty tough. I mean, you know, the religion is still going strong. It's getting yeah. weaker, but, you know, um, because so many people reject, well, everybody accepts that, you know, 
heliocentric view of the solar system. Now, if you're a, a geocentrist, you're going to be laughed out of court because it's so palpably obvious. But evolution is still a mystery to me because the facts that support evolution are just as strong as the facts that all the planets circle the sun. Um, but at any rate, you know, God is still... I mean, he may be out of a job, but there's a lot of people giving him welfare. So. <laughs> uh, Jerry Coyne is my guest on Religion for Life, Faith versus Fact, Why Science and Religion are Incompatible. Uh, faith, um, faith. Uh, you talk really quite clearly that faith is not necessarily a virtue, it, it's uh, a vice. Can you, what is faith? Well, you know, people differ on their construal of faith. In my book, I try to use a consistent source for all my definitions so that people won't argue that I'm cherry-picking. And that was mm -hmm. the Oxford English Dictionary, which basically defines faith the same way that the Bible does. And I think it's Hebrews, either 1.11 or 11.1. I'm not really up on my scripture today, but so that faith is the evidence of things not seen or the substance of things that you don't know, something like that. You know, it's basically belief in something where you do not have enough strong evidence to support that belief, belief based on revelation, scripture, or dogma. Mark Twain said, faith is believing what you know ain't true, which is, you know, mm -hmm. invidious to believers, but, you know, it's more or less an accurate characterization of it. So in the book, I struggle with the question of whether it's ever good to have faith, i.e. belief without evidence, and I can only think of a very few cases in which we should place strong credence in things for which we have no evidence. You know, for example, if my mother was dying, I mean, she wasn't a believer, but uh, sorry, if your mother is, somebody's mother is dying and she's religious and she's consoled by the idea at her end that she's going to go to heaven. Yeah, that, that's a faith-based statement that I strongly disagree with, but I'm not going to go over to somebody's deathbed and say, you know, you're wrong about that. There's no right. evidence yeah. for heaven. I mean, why at the end of somebody's life would you take that away from? On the other hand, that kind of faith in, in like slaves or people who are kept subjugated by the propaganda that they're going to have a better life in the next world if they suffer now, which is what Mother Teresa used to say. Um, that's a kind of that same kind of faith can really hold back the progress of humanity. I think so. You know, I don't think there are many circumstances in which faith is a good thing, and particularly in religion, when you're placing the whole idea of what's going to happen to you for eternity and how you should behave, when you rest those on a fulcrum of faith that you think for which there's no evidence. <laughs> yeah. I prefer to live my life based on rationality rather than things for which there's no evidence. Now, there will be people listening uh, to this program. There are people listening and saying, um, well, you know, he's great, but he's not talking about my religion. He's talking about fundamentalism or something like that, that my, my theology is more sophisticated. I accept science and whatnot. But you also say that liberal religions, quote, act as enablers of more extreme anti-science creeds. So, yeah, well, that's one aspect of it. Yes, that religionists really realize they're all in the same boat. So you don't see them criticizing each other very much. You know, um, sometimes they do, you know, but you won't see the phase at war with each other. I mean, they will be involved in wars like, you know, um, ISIS or Boko Haram have faith-based wars because of differences in creeds or anything. But let's just take within the United States. The liberal religionists, you don't see them attacking, you know, um, Southern Baptists very much. It's all a live or let th live thing because they really know it, I think, in their hearts that 
that all of this faith is based on the same lack of evidence. So, you know, that's one thing. The other thing is that, as I say in the book, you know, all, um, that, that some people are fundamentalists all the time, but liberal religionists are fundamentalists some of the time. That is, if you take even the liberal believer, except for the most liberal believers, like Bishop Spong or the Unitarian Universalists, who are like one millimeter away from being atheists, they do rest their faith on certain empirical propositions. And you can see this by taking polls of Americans that I describe in my book. If you assess, for example, the percentage of Americans that believe in the existence of Satan, they're certain about the existence of God, they believe in hell or heaven, or that Jesus was resurrected, it's always between 60 and 80 percent. So that's not a tiny minority of Americans. This is the percentage of all Americans that hold to these propositions. Surveys in Britain show similar figures. And of course, if you go to Muslim countries like Saudi Arabia, and there's a Pew survey of Muslim beliefs, it's even more, you know, strongly slanted towards supernaturalism. So the claim that, you know, you know, yeah, some people are Unitarian Universalists, and they can say, well, my religion doesn't depend on any factual statements at all. But that is not the typical believer in America. The typical believer in America at least thinks that Jesus was the Son of God, died, and was resurrected, and is going to come back, and we're going to have the end times. That's the norm, as far as I can see. Yeah. Yeah, I know that's scary. Uh, yeah. You talk about Einstein in your book, and uh, religion often kind of wants to put him on on their team. Uh, in fact, they use the quote that you mentioned: "Science without religion is lame. Religion without science is blind." So, clear it up for us: Was Einstein religious? No, I mean, I think anybody that makes a serious attempt to study what he said knows that he was not conventionally religious. First of all, he said he thought religion was a man-made phenomenon. He never believed in a personal God. He said this explicitly to people who wrote to him, and I put this in my book. Um, at best, he was a pantheist, and that's what I think he was. I mean, Albert's not here with us now <laughs> to clarify his <laughs> views, but as far as I can tell, what he considered religion was an attitude of awe before the universe, an attitude of spiritual... Um, awe before the, you know, laws that we don't fully understand. So when he said that, was it, sorry, science without religion is lame, was that the quote? Yeah, science without religion is lame and religion without yeah. science is blind. Yeah, well, um, I think what he means by that, and again, he's not here with us to explain, but it's supported by all of his writings, is that what he means by religion is an attitude of wonder towards the mysteries of the universe. So yes, if you don't have that and you're a scientist, you're, you're crippled. <laughs> I mean, how can you do your work unless you're inspired by the unknown, you know? And Einstein was working in the greatest area of unknowns of all, the laws of physics and cosmology, which we may well never understand. But as far as, you know, scholars that have studied Einstein, including um, his latest biography, um, I can't remember the gentleman who wrote it, but it was the guy that wrote the Steve Jobs biography, Walter Eisenberg, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, their conclusions were that Einstein was not by any means either conventionally religious or even a, a deist, that he did not see a sort of person in the sky kind of God, even one that kept his hands off. He was a pantheist who saw all of nature as sort of something spiritual and maybe even sacred, but not in the numinous way. <laughs> 
The book is Faith Versus Fact, Why Science and Religion Are Incompatible, a very important book by Dr. Jerry Coyne. Uh, final question here. We just have a few seconds left. Uh, the purpose of this book, who do you hope to convince and, and what do you hope they will do? Well, I mean, I aim it at everybody. I don't have the illusion that religionists are going to give up their faith on mass because it's such a strong security blanket. But, you know, I have had emails from religious people that have said that this book and my evolution of true have helped dispel their faith. I aim it mostly at two groups, the people on the fence who are contemplating, you know, what do I want to believe? Do I want to be religious? What is the nature of the evidence that I need to support my worldview and my beliefs. And I also aim it at non-believers like myself that want a full explication of the sort of conflict between science and religion and why one person, i.e. me, considers them incompatible. Again, this is a personal view I take here, and there are many people who have other ways to reconcile science and religion. I just think that those ways are sort of bogus and that the problem ultimately comes down to do I need evidence for the things that I believe? All right. Jerry Coyne, thank you very much for being with me and for this book. My pleasure. From KBOO Portland, this is Religion for Life, religionforlife.com. Be well.